Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear, and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hello again, my friend. Thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule of sitting at home and wondering when in the hell you're going to be able to leave and see your friends and family again and take a trip and go to the movies and go out to eat safely and get your hair cut and all that other crap that you, and just walk around the mall and not really buy anything and just waste time. I love doing that. So I'm guessing you probably do too. And, and, browse used dvd music and uh, bookstores which is probably my all-time favorite pastime and not even probably i think it is it's therapy for me and this is a time when we all need therapy so it's sad that we can't really do those things we love but you know what we're getting through it together man and uh I'm, uh, I'm glad that you would take some time here during the quarantine to listen to the Stream Police podcast. And I got to tell you, man, getting into this closet, stepping in here and recording this show is one of the things I have looked forward to very much over the last few weeks. Um, and I hope you've looked forward to catching another episode of it here on the Stream Police. Uh, so welcome into the show. If it's your first time joining us, uh, we talk about movies, TV, um, and music, things that are out there available for you streaming Typically, we tell you how you're able to find these things we're talking about. If not, then you can always just Google that. But usually, we'll try to drop that in there for you as well. Uh, my friend and yours, Andy Sedlak, will be joining us in a little bit to talk about music. But I am Clint Davis. I talk movies and TV here on the show. And we got a full plate uh, for us because, I mean, I've been watching a lot of stuff lately. I always watch a lot of stuff. If you listen to this show, you know that. I basically spend every minute of my free time watching something. And this has been no different. Uh, honestly, I don't think I've been watching more lately than I typically have. I think Beth and I have been watching more together than we usually do uh, because we've had more time kind of just hanging out together. And we've needed the escapism a little bit more. But I've pretty much been watching the same amount of stuff I I uh, usually do. If anything, I've, I think I've actually maybe watched a few less movies than I might during a, a normal time. I don't know why that is. I've been playing video games a little bit more, so that's probably what it is. I think video games have been a really good escape during this because the hours just melt away and they really give you something to focus your brain on and something that you, you can't think about anything else when you're playing a video game. Even when you're watching a movie, unless it's one of the really good ones, you can other things can creep in 
and there are good excuses to pause it. But when you're playing a video game, it's kind of like you start playing and then all of a sudden you look at the clock and seven hours have passed and you haven't moved from the couch once. So anyway, I'm Clint Davis. I record my part of the show from beautiful Columbus, Ohio, and uh, I sit in my closet. Usually I smoke a stogie here to start the show, but I'm not doing that during this period because just out of solidarity of the people who are having a hard time breathing on, they're on ventilators. They are dying from COVID-19 and people like our beloved John Prine, who we eulogized last month. It just makes me think about them. And, uh, I mean, these people are having a hard time breathing. So I'm not going to sit in here in my closet and smoke my cigar right now, just out of respect and solidarity for them. Uh, and also, you know, out of just a little bit of respect for the fire code, but that's not really, that's not at the forefront of my thinking right now. It's really just the people that can't breathe out there. So anyway, it's our 79th edition of the show. I will urge you, as I have been for a while now, to uh, check me out on YouTube. I am at Overdue Review. If you want to see my video reviews of uh, movies up there uh, and some TV reviews, I did a lot of Game of Thrones reviews up on the, the YouTube channel back when that show was on. And uh, I also urge you to follow me on Instagram at Mr. Clint Davis, Mr. Clint Davis. I'm also on Twitter, Mr. Clint Davis. But if you follow me on Instagram and you check my stories out whenever there is one, typically what you're going to see is what I am watching on that given night. So you can I always welcome you to send me a message, send me a DM. Slide on in there, man, and let me know what you think about what I'm watching or ask me my thoughts on it, and I'll tell you, because I don't post reviews on Instagram. I just post what I'm watching, and that's it. I, I just try to make it, you know, w without a lot of thoughts, unless I really have some big thoughts on something, then I will sometimes post it, usually if it's one I've already seen before. Uh, and Andy is on Instagram, by the way, at Andy Sedlak, and his last name is spelled S-E-D-L-A-K, so find him right there. And you can always email us as well. Andy's at sedlackjournal at gmail.com and I am at theclintdavis at gmail.com. T-H-E clintdavis at gmail.com. And I bring up the email because um, I got another message from one of our listeners because uh, last month I was asking you to tell me what the best thing you've been watching during quarantine has been. What's the thing that's kind of been getting you through this whole period? And I've gotten some good answers. I've got a big mixed bag of answers. And I got my latest message came from longtime listener and longtime friend uh, Mandy, who wrote me and said that the two things that the, her favorite things she's watched during uh, quarantine. And I know Mandy's a big TV viewer from working with her in the past. She's always watching uh, new shows and watching different shows kind of across all, a whole lot of genres. Um and so she said that the favorite things she's been watching are Roswell, New Mexico on the CW and Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist on NBC. I don't know anything about Roswell, New Mexico. I'm going to guess off the top of my head what it's kind of about being uh, maybe like an alien sci-fi uh, kind of investigation show, maybe X-Files style, which does appeal to me. But I remember seeing the uh, trailers for Zoe's Extraordinary Playlist, some of the promos that NBC would air. And uh, the, that show looked really weird. It was like a high concept kind of like musical TV program, which those are always kind of hit or miss. But this one was like a, a woman had some kind of head injury or something. And so she was able to hear people's inner thoughts, but they were expressed like in musical numbers. So very 
weird idea for a show that I, it's hard to imagine anyone coming up with pitching to a network and them going for, but they did it and it did look like kind of an interesting show. So Mandy says she enjoys it. It's one of her favorite things she's watched during the quarantine. And I'm not going to judge your favorite things that you've watched during the quarantine. Um, except for our friend Tyler last month who wrote me and said he was watching that Netflix dating show with Nick Lachey. I did judge the shit out of him. So I guess I'm lying, but I, I don't want to judge what you're watching right now because this is a weird time. We need whatever escapism we can get. You know what I've been watching a lot of over the past month? Um, and I watch kind of a lot of it anyway, but over the past month, especially I've been watching a lot of Food Network, which has been helping me get through all this. I'm the one that cooks uh, in our house and I love cooking. It's always been, um, you know, my grandpa always liked doing it. My grandma liked doing it. Uh, my mom was a good cook too. And I just have always kind of liked doing it. It's creative. It's fun. And, you know, it passes the time. It's gratifying when people enjoy something that you made. So I like to cook and I like to watch Food Network because they just, I, I don't really like to watch the shows where it's just somebody cooking and talking about them cooking. But I just like seeing the different foods and it does teach you some different things about cooking. So I've been watching, I had fun this last month watching Tournament of Champions, which was a new show on Food Network where they got all these renowned chefs who have, you know, been veterans of TV cooking competitions. They got them all together into a bracket and had them face off with, you know, each other over the course of like four weeks, I think it was. And it was like a March Madness style bracket. Um, and it was pretty cool. And it kind of took the place of live sports for just a little bit uh, because it was kind of a sports format. I also just finished watching the second season of Buddy vs. Duff, which is a uh, baking competition that, you know, takes place over the course of like eight weeks between the big TV bakers, um, Buddy from uh, Buddy Velastro from uh, Cake Boss and Duff Goldman from the Ace of Cakes. And they face off. They get like 24 hours to make an insane cake based on a different theme every week and the cakes are just massive they're so intricately uh designed and sculpted and painted and it's just they're like works of art seriously and it's like watching fine artists it's like watching sculptors and painters at work when you see these people making cakes so uh they don't look like they'd be very good to eat but they are very fun to look at so i really enjoyed watching buddy versus duff and tournament of champions if you're looking for some you know tv junk food to watch uh those have been good. I've also been watching a lot of old boxing matches on YouTube and on ESPN as well when they've been airing them because ESPN's been doing a lot of classic boxing matches, especially on Saturdays. Uh, they've been airing them on ESPN or on ESPN News in high def, you know, classics like the Rumble and the Jungle and the Thriller and Manila. And, uh, you know, so many over the years, not just Ali fights, but so many great ones, and they've been usually following themes. Um and, and YouTube has pretty much every fight ever, you know, you could find, especially any big fights. You can find them on there for free. So I've been watching a lot of old fights. I've always loved boxing anyway, but this has been a good time to just go back and watch some of the old fights that I never got to see that I've always wanted to watch. Uh, and that's been really fun. I've been passing a lot of time that way. I also have to tell you, I got so desperate for live sports that I actually watched the undercard of the UFC 249 event on ESPN over the weekend. It was like the first big American sporting event to be held during the quarantine um, or since the quarantine happened. And, it, you know, I mean, I don't like UFC. I told you I love boxing, but UFC's never been my thing. I just don't, 
really get it. I don't find the people that are involved in it to be all that appealing. And anything that has Joe Rogan as like its main spokesperson just kind of is, is not something that I want to have a whole lot to do with. So anyway, I actually watched a couple UFC fights on ESPN. I mean, that that's how desperate I was. So, yeah, I mean, I... It was. It, it, I'm not a. Pr- I'm not proud of it, but I'm just saying this is what we've gotten to at this point. So what's been getting you through? Send me an email, theclintdavis at gmail.com. What have you watched that you would not normally spend any time watching? Because I'm betting there's been something that you're maybe feeling a little bit embarrassed that you actually sat down and watched because you finally have the time and there's nothing else on. So what's been getting you through? Theclintdavis at gmail.com. Hit me up and I'll uh, talk about your answer next time on the stream police. Okay, let's move right along and let's get to our 51st entry in the canon of the greatest TV show theme songs of all time this week. Our pick this month is going to be something that I think is going to touch the hearts of a lot of people in our audience, especially people of a certain age. So in the past few weeks during quarantine, let me give you a personal note here. I have discovered how rich a resource Disney Plus is especially if you have a kid or if you're just someone who grew up on Disney movies and TV shows and Disney original Disney Channel original movies that kind of stuff and you're looking for some comforting nostalgia which I think doesn't hurt any of us at this point Disney Plus is great cuz it's got basically everything that you could ever want to see we've been watching a lot of Disney Plus with our son Emerson who's coming up on his second birthday now here in the next couple months and I think that Honestly, watching Disney Plus has been as enjoyable for Beth and I as it has been for him because Beth and I grew up on the Disney, you know, classic movies and she really grew up on like the Disney Channel stuff as well. I was a Nickelodeon kid, but I watched all the Disney movies when I was a kid on VHS and so watching these again and the Pixar movies has been really fun for us and it's been fun for him, but I think it's been more of an excuse to watch them again for us. That's what he's given us. So But anyway, my son has a lot of characters that he loves from different Disney things and from different PBS kids things that he watches. But for some reason, his favorite of all of the characters that are out there in the world is Goofy. Disney's Goofy. He's got a Goofy stuffed animal that he sleeps with. And before he had that, he had this Goofy book that he would sleep with. It was just a book that had Goofy's face on the front of it. And he had to have it in his bed at night. He would call for it and had to have the Goofy book in the bed with him. I don't know why, what he thought. He thought the book was like him. He thought it was like having Goofy in the bed with him. So anyway, we've got him a stuffed animal since so he doesn't have to sleep with the book anymore. Uh, but he also has a nightlight that projects Goofy's big mug on the ceiling. So he's just, he loves Goofy. So in honor of my son's love of that classic and weird Disney character, because nobody really knows what he, I guess he's a dog, but Pluto's a dog too. And why can't, why doesn't Pluto talk and wear clothes? I don't know. Nobody knows what happened in the evolutionary chain as to why Goofy is the way he is and Pluto's not. But anyway, in honor of my son's love of Goofy, I'm giving our 51st pick of the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week to Goofy's own classic 1990s animated sitcom. That is right. Goof Troop. 
my friend. If you grew up in the 1990s, you probably saw at least a few of this show's 78 total episodes, which debuted in September 1992. The show followed Goofy and his son Max as they moved back to Goofy's old hometown and get into adventures with their friends Pete and PJ. The series first aired in syndication as part of Disney's block of afternoon shows that also included Darkwing Duck, Chippendale Rescue Rangers, and my personal favorite of all of them, Tailspin. Anybody else remember Tailspin? I loved that show when I was a kid. That Disney afternoon block was was brilliant. It was those shows were fantastic. They were thrilling, funny, awesome. The animation was great, and uh, it was just a it was just a hell of a block. And all the shows actually had pretty great theme songs, but. Goof Troops might have been the best. I mean, you've got that 1990s hip-hop beat. you got that smooth, insanely high vocal by Phil Perry. I don't even know how he hits those notes. Those are the things that really make this a masterpiece. And, you know, I looked into Perry as I was researching this this part because I want to know more about him. And he was actually a soul and R&B singer in the 1970s. He broke out with a group called the Montclairs, who I've never heard of. I don't know. Andy might know them. But anyway, he sang with the Montclairs and he actually scored on his own a number one hit on the R&B charts as a solo artist in 1991 with a cover of Aretha Franklin's song, Call Me. So Phil Perry was actually a pretty hot act when he was hired to do the Goof Troop opener in 1992. When I was looking more into this guy, I came across a story that I had to share. This is crazy. Phil Perry was living in Chicago in 2001 and was scheduled to perform a lunch hour gig for some company that worked out of the World Trade Center on September 11th. He's scheduled to do a gig there. An issue at the airport apparently caused Perry to miss his flight to New York that day and probably saved his life. And some people that he regularly worked with and performed with were caught in the attack and were there that day when it happened. And the whole incident shook Perry up so badly that he actually stopped performing for several years before eventually resuming his musical career. And I just thought that was an incredible story, and I wanted to share it because, you know, I mean, it's his full-throated performance that makes this such a great theme song. Goof Troop would end up revitalizing interest in Goofy as a lead character, would basically make him into a lead character, and it would spawn two movies from Disney. A Goofy movie hit theaters in 1995, and an extremely Goofy movie went uh, straight to video in 2000. And you can actually catch Goof Troop, you could find both of those movies as well, uh, all on Disney Plus right now if you want to stream them. All the episodes of Goof Troop streaming for you now on Disney Plus, and we have started to go back and watch it, and it's slightly irritating, but funny and endearing, um, and we watched both the movies, too, I actually like the, uh, I, both the movies were pretty good, but the Goofy movie was actually, um, actually very good, I mean, really, it was one of those that I hadn't seen, I hadn't watched it when I was a kid, I missed it, and uh, I really liked the, liked it a lot, it was kind of a sweet father-son thing, but anyway, Goof Troop itself, and its catchy opening tune, is our pick for the greatest TV show theme song of all time this week. 
It's that ending little scat thing that Phil Perry does that really is kind of, I think, what makes that theme song so great in the end. I mean, that's that's the punctuation mark. That's the exclamation point on the end of this fantastic sentence that just kind of really gets stuck in your head. So last time we spoke, uh, my friend, I told you about uh, Killing Eve, which is airing now on AMC and on BBC America in its third season. And the first couple seasons are uh, available for you on Hulu to stream right now. Um, and this is a very fast watch. I told you last month that, I mean, this is a show where you got eight episodes a season, classic British show in that way. And I told you how fun I thought the first season was and how addicted to it Beth and I really were. We were like ripping through that first season. We were so sad when it was over. And um, since we've spoken now, we are completely caught up on the show. We ripped through the second season. We've you know watched season three as it's aired and it's still airing right now as I'm uh, telling you this, uh, but we're caught up on the show now. So I just wanted to real quickly tell you that I was a little, I found myself a little disappointed, a little bored during the second season. I think because of how just how fast paced the first season was and then and how different the first season was from a lot of things I had seen. And the second season comes out and it's a lot of the same stuff. And the way the first season ended was weak, in my opinion. And then the second season comes out and, and the way it ends is virtually the same as the way the first season ended. And it was weak again. And it just feels like they're not going all the way. Um, which is disappointing to me when you're talking about a show that, like in its third episode, killed a really main character. And I thought, all right, here we go. This is legitimate. And uh, Villanelle is a real villain in this show, not just some kind of, you know, uh, anti-hero, basically, or uh, kind of misunderstood, not that bad woman. She is really, she's bad. And she continues to do awful things in the second season, but it all just kind of felt like we had seen it all and done it all before. But in the third season so far, I've been enjoying it a little bit more. They've been taking more risks. They've been giving us a little bit more emotional highs in the third season. And they've been uh, having uh, the main character of Eve, played by the great Sandra Oh, they've been having her kind of pay the price for some things that she's done in past seasons as well. So uh, it's been good to see some dramatic payoff in the third season that I thought was missing from the second season. Apparently what happened, though, was... This show is based on a series of books about, you know, they're called the Villanelle books, I guess. And uh, they're written by a man. The show is was uh, created by Phoebe Waller-Bridge, who um, kind of gave it a big feminist twist. And a lot of the writers of the episodes are women as well. Not all of them, but a lot of them are. And the showrunners have all been women. Uh, so anyway, th but the first season was based on the books and then the books, they ran out of book space already in one season. It was like Phoebe Waller-Bridge blew through the books too quickly. And I mean, you remember what happened with Game of Thrones. They were done with the books after what was it? The fourth season or was it after the fifth season? I can't remember. I think it was after the fourth season. So then they were off book 
And those seasons after that were the ones that started to drag the show down and they started to suck and it started to feel formulaic and it started to feel like they were just trying to do the same things again. And that's exactly what happened with Killing Eve. I didn't realize it until I read some things, but the second season, third season, they're off the books. So it's now up to TV writers, which they should be good enough to come up with something on their own, but apparently Phoebe Waller-Bridge doesn't write episodes of the show anymore, and so she kind of passed that off to other people. So she kind of screwed them, I feel like. It was like she gave them this one season that everyone loved, and then she was like, yeah, the books are done, so I got, I'm moving on to other stuff. I'm writing James Bond movies now, so I can't really fool with this anymore. But anyway, Killing Eve... First couple seasons on Hulu, third season airing now uh, on AMC and BBC America. And I, I do think it's worth your time still because it's just a quick show and it's fun and addictive, stylish. Uh, the characters are interesting. Villanelle is interesting. Eve is, you know, pretty interesting to follow. But Sandra Oh is just a great actor, so it's worth watching her in anything. And Jodie Comer is really good in what has been an Emmy-winning performance for her as Villanelle. So I think it's uh, it's it's just a cool show. And it's, um, you know, good, sexy, stylistic TV. Nothing too deep. You know, don't expect, they're not reinventing the wheel here. This isn't like the greatest drama you've ever seen or anything like that, but it, it's pretty good. And I think the third season has been getting back to what made the first season interesting. But I do think they need to change it up a little bit because we can't, it, it can't, this show cannot just be one character chasing another character for the whole series. It just, it can't be that. It's too, that's too little meat to fill up a TV. So that's what you do in a movie. You don't, that's not a TV show. To me, a lot of other shows have tried that kind of thing and it's gotten boring fast. So uh, I, I don't know what they need to do, but pivot a little bit. So I'll, I'll be interested to see where they end this season because they cannot end it the same way they've done the other seasons. And Killing Eve has been very good about giving us surprises so far. So I hope they give us some big ones uh, at the end of this season. They've already given us a couple during the third season. Killing Eve has been a success in the ratings for sure, including this uh, most recent season. But the biggest thing in TV, the biggest television event of the quarantine so far, by far, has to be ESPN's documentary, The Last Dance. First of all, there's no backstabbing going on here. It's time for me to move on. This will be Phil's last year as the coach of the Bulls. Now, you might argue that it's been Tiger King on Netflix, but I'm talking regular TV here. I think uh, The Last Dance has definitely been it. And if you don't know what this is, this is a 10-part documentary film made by ESPN and Netflix, actually, uh, that follows the... 1997-1998 season of the Chicago Bulls that ended up being the uh, last season for Michael Jordan playing in a Bulls uniform and the team that would win a sixth NBA championship in eight years uh, and, and it closing you know just a dominant period of Jordan's career and, and really what would end up being the last really meaningful year of his career as an athlete, as a pro athlete. So uh, the Last Dance has been, just everyone's been watching it, tweeting about it, talking about it. The reviews have pretty much been great all across the board. Um, and Beth and I have been actually having a great time watching this uh, every week as well. Uh, is it the best documentary that ESPN has ever produced? 
if you looked at the numbers on like IMDB as far as what its rating is from users there, if you look at the reviews, you would think maybe it is, but I would say definitely not. Definitely not the best documentary ESPN's done. ESPN has done some tremendous documentaries over the years, not just in the last few years, but especially in the last few years, they've really cranked that up a lot in the last decade. Um, but it is very good as a piece of cultural uh, and sports history. And it came really at the exact time we all needed it, I think, which is another thing it has going for it. I mean, if this this was supposed to air in June, ESPN was going to air it along with the um, NBA Finals when the NBA Finals were happening in early June. But they ended up airing it early because it doesn't look like the NBA Finals are going to happen this year. And uh, they realized that everyone was starved for content. It was brilliant because I think it's it's filled a void and it's... Given it's made ESPN into a destination channel at a time where there is nothing on their network that anyone really needs to see right now. I mean, they're doing Sports Center every night, but I don't know what the hell they're talking about because there's just no no sports to talk about. So they're probably just talking about tweets and drafts, and that's basically been it. So and ESPN's been winning. I mean, they the, the NFL draft biggest ratings it's ever done. Um, hell, I actually watched some of the NFL draft this year, and I never watched that. That's another thing. I never, ever waste my time watching the NFL draft. It's stupid to me. But uh, this year I actually watched some of it because I was starved. I watched I watched UFC for Christ's sake. That's what I'm saying. So anyway, The Last Dance, I was going to watch it anyway. I don't care when it aired. I would watch this thing. Um, but it, why this has been, I think, such a well-received movie is because they got everybody. And let me give a shout-out to the director, Jason Hehir, I think is how you say his name. And he uh, gave us some different sports documentaries in the past few years. He did a few of the 30 for 30s. He did uh, the Fab Five movie that ESPN aired a few years ago. He did one on the 85 Bears, was probably the most notable one. He did uh, the Andre the Giant TV documentary for HBO that got good reviews. So he's been kind of building his name as a, a good sports documentary filmmaker over the last few years. And The Last Dance is definitely the biggest project that he has made. And I, I think he's done a nice job putting it together. I think the editing in this is top notch. I, I would hate to know how long it took to edit this film because it's just really, there's a ton of footage. So what they're pulling footage from is a, there was actually a team of documentary filmmakers that followed the Bulls during that 97, 98 season because it was like everyone knew it was going to be historic. And Phil Jackson, the coach of the Bulls, called it the last dance that season. And uh, because, I mean, he loves drama just like anybody else. And he, they hired documentary filmmakers and let them have unprecedented access to the team during that time. But the movie, like, never got made for whatever reason. Like, nothing ever came of it. So The Last Dance is this really deep 10-hour look into that footage and into current interviews with the people who were involved in the NBA and, and following the Bulls and playing on the Bulls and coaching the Bulls uh, and owning the Bulls that season. So they, they got virtually everybody. I mean, they got pretty much every player on the Bulls. They got Tony Kukoc. They tracked him down. Uh, in Croatia somehow, and uh, they got you know journalists who were following the team. They got opponents. They even got Isaiah Thomas on the record, a guy who famously hated Michael Jordan. Michael Jordan hated him. They have an, a terrible, just totally iced over relationship at this point. Um, have never said anything nice about each other basically in public, and 
they got him on the record for this movie, which was kind of amazing for me. And I think added a lot to the film, especially in the episode where they're talking about the Pistons 89, you know, 1990 teams uh, winning championships and uh, beating Michael Jordan and the Bulls, knocking them out of the playoffs. So it uh, it's just it's a really well explored and uh, it's a really well-reported and, and good kind of deep dive into this season. You could have – the problem with a lot of the 30 for 30s is sometimes you've got an idea that's good for about 15 minutes of conversation, and they stretch it out into an hour-long episode. And then other times you've got stories that need – they could be a TV series, and you've got to condense them down to a one-hour film you know, with commercial breaks thrown in there as well. So that's the problem with 30 for 30s. So I think what they've done here and what they had a lot of success with, with the O.J. Simpson Made in America movie that actually won in the, won them an Oscar a couple years ago. And that one was very good. That one was probably, that was better than The Last Dance, I think, really, in the end. But anyway, The Last Dance is just a really deep, satisfying look at this team that was historically good and meant a lot culturally, and it's really about Michael Jordan. I mean, it, let's not, let's not. It, I mean, it's about the Bulls, and they do give a lot of time to the different star players. We spend most of one of the episodes looking at Scottie Pippen. We spend most of one of the episodes looking at the career of Dennis Rodman before he was with the Bulls and um, with in his time with the Bulls and his life off the court, which is famously checkered. Um, but it's it's mostly about Jordan, and this is the most in-depth we've ever gotten on Michael Jordan in a film. So it's even deeper than Space Jam, I'm telling you. No, it's seriously, though. And they already did a 30 for 30 about Jordan. They did the Jordan Rides the Bus movie, which was pretty good, kind of boring. Um, it was about his baseball, his time playing baseball. But The Last Dance just has this event television feel to it. Every part of it just feels like a million bucks. They've got great music in it. The interviews look good. They've got you know good sound bites. They're airing it on ESPN, uncut. So it's TVMA. All the none of the curse words are cut out, and there are a lot of them. There's a lot of, of um, you know R-rated language in this. But they're also airing it on ESPN2 with everything blurred out. So you can watch it kind of whichever way you want. You know, if you're watching it with kids, you watch it that way if you want to. Or if, you know, you don't, you, you just don't care about hearing them curse a bunch, then watch that version. But I've really liked watching the uncut version on ESPN in prime time. I think it took balls for them to do that, and I'm glad they did it. Because a movie like this deserved that. And I don't think everyone would want to just wait and have to watch it again. Spend another 10 hours watching it to see the uncut version when it finally came out on Netflix or whatever, or on ESPN+. Plus. Um, but everything looks really good. And like I said, the music's great. And I thought the editing, where it really hit home for me, was the end of the first episode. When you're watching that first episode, and you're just along for the ride of it, and then they start cranking in the uh, Alan Parsons Project song, Serious, which is the the song you think of when you think of the Chicago Bulls and you think of Michael Jordan playing hoops, you think of that song coming in. And the way they ended that episode just gave me chills that stood on my arm for like five minutes. So look at, uh, if, if you didn't watch The Last Dance yet, watch it and pay attention at the end of that first episode because the way it, it transitions into the credits, I think, is some of the finest TV editing, especially with music, that I have ever seen done. I think it was brilliant. I think it set the hook deep for what was coming for the rest of this show. But I would have watched the rest of it, even if 
the end of the first episode wasn't that good, but it was. One thing I'm not crazy about in this movie so far, The Last Dance, and I'm calling it a movie. I know it's it's you know be like a mini series really, but I'm just going to call it a, a documentary um, because there have been plenty of documentaries that are this long that are just considered a documentary. It's not you know really called a docu series. This is just like one film to me. That's the way I would look at it. I'm not crazy about the way that they ruthlessly trash on Jerry Krause. They pile on him so bad. He's the he was the general manager of the Bulls during the Jordan years and before the Jordan years and after the Jordan years. And he was the guy that kind of built the team into what it was and he took a lot of risks in the way that he did it and he pissed a lot of people off including Michael Jordan and Scottie Pippen. And was every decision he made great? No, but I mean what GM has a perfect track record. And uh, a, a lot of people in Chicago still hate him because they think he's the one that basically broke the team up. I'm not sure that that's 100% true, and I think a changing of the guard in the NBA was coming anyway. So I don't know if Jordan and his Bulls win another championship anyway. I don't know if they could afford that team again for another year um, and afford Michael again for another year. Uh, but Kobe and Shaq were on the horizon, so I think the good times were ending and you know, Phil Jackson was leaving anyway, but you can blame that on Kraus. But I don't want to get all into the sports business side of it. Basically, what I'm saying is they trash Jerry Kraus very one-sidedly in this film. And this is a guy that's dead now. Kraus died in 2017, so there's no interviews with him except for file footage from the old days. So, And you do get some pretty good file footage of him being honest about things. But it's tough to just trash a guy so hard, and they do. They make him like the villain. They make him seem like this small, mean-spirited man. And what I've heard about Jerry Krause in other places, other interviews, is that he was a good guy, really. Like, he wasn't a bad guy. He was just, you know, kind of an asshole when it came to doing his job. But are you kidding me? I mean, this is this is Michael Jordan. He's like the ultimate asshole when he's doing his job. Uh, Dennis Rodman. I mean, come on. These guys are not, these aren't nice guys that are winning popularity contests based on the way they treat their opponents. So I just thought that, Picking on Jerry Krause as much as they do was a little uh, unnecessary, especially like I said, he's the guy's dead. You know, I mean, let it kind of let it lie. It's not like he was uh, some kind of big racist, sexist, evil villain that we need to we need to t- teach people a lesson on this guy and how bad he was. He was just kind of a uh, you know he, he could be a dick when he was doing his job, and you know he him and Phil Jackson didn't get along that well and him and Scotty and Michael didn't get along that well. So that was it. But unfortunately you're only hearing from those guys and you're not hearing from Jerry Krause. So that's the way it goes. To his credit, he did his job, but Jerry had the little man problem. He grew up little fat kid, not a lot of money. He was always the underdog and he just couldn't control that part of him that needed credit. All the attention is going to Michael and Scotty and Dennis and Phil. And Krauss was growing resentful about this. He was good, but he wasn't good enough to do it without Michael Jordan. I also wanted to bring up the fact that Ken Burns, you know, the god of television documentary filmmaking of all time, uh, actually came out and knocked this film, even though he said he hasn't seen it. He knocked The Last Dance uh, for the simple fact that among uh, the people who backed this movie is Michael Jordan's own production company. And 
Burns basically said that you can't do good journalism that way. And what is documentary filmmaking but investigative journalism? That's exactly what it's supposed to be, right? And I can't, I can't disagree with Ken Burns on that. And I thought the same thing. I thought it was pretty tacky that it was produced by Michael Jordan and it's about Michael Jordan. I mean, that's just not a good recipe for uh, a documentary film. You know what I mean? I mean, it's one thing if it's a fictional film. Even that's tacky. But if it's a documentary film, then you know that what you're going to get is a lot of hero worship. And that's exactly what we've kind of gotten in this movie. So, But unfortunately, Michael Jordan is such a controlling guy with his image. It's one of the reasons why he's becomes he's so successful and so rich. He's so controlling with his image uh, that this it's a necessary evil for this to be you know produced by his production company. Otherwise, it wouldn't have happened. The bottom line is that Michael Jordan would never have been involved and wouldn't have given these kinds of frank interviews on camera if the film was not produced by him and if he wasn't getting something out of it in the end because he's just shrewd. That's just the way he is. And I think this the last dance would not be nearly as big a deal as it is, as essential as it is, as good as it is, if not for Michael Jordan being interviewed. If Jordan was missing in the interviews, that would feel weird, right? I mean, it just it wouldn't seem right, and it would seem like, yeah, this is bootleg shit. So the fact that they got Jordan in it, and he's very honest in the movie, I think, and I think he does do some good interviews, and it's, it's cool to hear him talk because he doesn't do interviews very much. Um... So it is it is a novelty in that way if you've been a longtime Jordan fan to really hear his thoughts on those on those days and on his own career and on his teammates and his opponents. Uh, but yeah, I mean, is it great journalism? I probably not. And that's why I say I don't think it's ESPN's crowning achievement, but it is good. Uh, and it's it's worth a watch for sure if you love basketball at all because it's just uh, and, and if you love basketball at all, I'm sure you're already watching it, but um, it's just a, a, a and if, even if you don't like basketball, I think just as a look at 90s time capsule culture, uh, there's some really great stuff in here. And you'll learn some things about this team that maybe will get you interested in learning more history of the NBA, because frankly, the NBA has got a fascinating history. And it's a league that uh, has had some incredible characters over the course of its uh, of its time running and uh, Jordan and his teammates are some of the best. So, and they're, they're all featured in this movie and the music's great. Like I said, the editing is wonderful. Uh, and it's just a really, it's an impressive film and it clearly took a lot of time to put together. So uh, the last dance right now is streaming on ESPN and on ESPN two. Uh, and it is streaming for you on ESPN plus as well. If you want to watch it on demand, I definitely recommend you checking it out. Just take it with a little, little tiny bit of a grain of salt. All right, I'm going to sit back here in the closet and sip a little bit of tea while I pass things over to Andy Sedlak, who is up in Cleveland, up by the lake, man. He's got a better view than I do. Uh, Let's hear what he's listening to right now. I know he's going to tell us about another icon we lost, our boy, Little Richard. So take it away, my friend. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. 
Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. Coronarama <laughs> rages on. How are you holding up? I hope uh, uh, you've been able to find a, a silver lining in all of this. Things are rock solid here in Cleveland. It seems here that we've gotten a, a better grip on the virus. Now, hopefully, we don't screw it up. We're heading in the right direction. I hope we don't screw it up. But um, I want to jump right in. And I want to talk about Little Richard. To my generation, Little Richard was always like the guy who showed up in TV shows. Like the the funny, you know, outrageous dude that always found a, a way onto the shows we used to watch. I'll give you I'll give you a couple examples. Here he is on Full House. Joey, if you would, you blanch the vegetables, and uh, I'll toss the salad, and... Hi! Hi, everybody! <laughs> and I think little Richard just walked through the kitchen. Little Richard, could you play at Joey's rally? Oh, Michelle, we couldn't impose on an international superstar to play at a PTA rally, sure. It's a, a good cause to get the art program back, and who knows, they might cancel the music program next. Shut up! So I can say yes. Yeah. Here is Little Richard on Sesame Street. Mama Ducky, you're the one. You make bath time lots of fun. Mama Ducky, I'm awfully fond of you. Here is Little Richard with Martin Lawrence on the show Martin. What's up? Did you call for an exterminator? <laughs> You're exterminated? Why else would I dress like this? Mardi Gras. <laughs> Shut up! He must have taken every job uh, offered to him. Don't you know who this is? This is Little Richard, the man practically invented rock and roll. Oh, wait a second. I recognize you now. You sang that Pat Boone song, Tutti Frutti, right? <laughs> 
So what have you got in the way of a luxury car? And when you see this guy show up with his goofy hair and his, his over-the-top persona, it's easy to overlook or even forget about how radical his music was when he first started out. Just how radical he was. So let's talk about the radical and and revolutionary Little Richard. His stuff from the mid-50s, mid to late 50s, I mean, that stuff is 10 times wilder than anything on the radio now. There was a physicality to it. He beat up that piano. He used it like a like a percussion instrument. And the screams. I asked my friends about it, but all they looked was tight. Lucy! You know, at the time, his vocal was, was viewed as undignified at best and and probably corruptive at worst. That is to say, he was black. When you look at Little Richard, he was not a simple guy. He did relish in his blackness. He was reveling on stage in a way that he wasn't permitted to do in real life. He satisfied his indulgences and created the hardness and the swing of rock and roll in the process. If you hadn't come along, or uh, maybe rock and roll would have started differently or later. Uh, I'm sure it would have started so- sooner or later. Uh, um, I, um, I don't believe it would have got started at all. He had so many songs, Tutti Frutti, The Girl Can't Help It, Long Tall Sally. The one that always had a special place to him in his heart was a song called Lucille. To hear him tell it, the song bailed him out on more than one occasion. Lucille always did it for you, didn't it? Oh, yes, it was the tune that I used for my uh, um, entrance on the stage. And whenever I got in trouble with an audience, I always got... Lucille has been so helpful to me. She's been a good girl. Why, why Lucille? I mean, what was it about I think Lucille? it's that rhythm. You know, in Georgia, where we're from, late at night, the most exciting thing in my hometown was the cows. Moo! And the chickens crowing. There wasn't nothing else going on there. And when you can pass that, you had made it. And when the train came through my hometown, everything in my hometown would be shaking. Chuckle, chuckle. And that's Lucille. I heard that train so much, I said, that's Lucille. I'll say it again. Little Richard was a complex guy. He grew up in poverty. He was one of 12 kids. His father beat him, accused him of being gay. His mother, by all accounts, was just, uh, uh, you know, pardon the terms, just kind of a bitch. With no tenderness 
or sympathy for her children. Now, in this next clip, disregard some of the laughing. The audience seems to think that he's he's being funny, but but it's actually quite serious. Here it is. Uh, When you were a young boy, you were tossed out of your own home, eh? Yes. How what what? How does this happen? Well, my daddy, we had twelve kids. My daddy's name is Charles Penniman, and we called him Bud. But I wouldn't obey my father. I didn't obey my father. I didn't do what he wanted me to do, and so he told me I had to get out. Mm -hmm. He said, Richard, you, I want, I was gay. And, and he says that I wanted seven boys, and you are messing it up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and my brother's name was Charles, so I would go out in the yard and call him. I had a high voice. I would say, Charles! He said, I'm going to kill you tonight. <laughs> he said, I'm going to kill you, because I, I was really flamboyant, so my, my people didn't like it. So my dad said, you either follow this rule or get out. Yeah. So I got out, because I wanted to wear all of my stones now, and how my old, How old were you when you hit the road, then, when he tossed you out? I was old enough to go in the streets. What his family had was the church. All roads ran through the church. Music came from the church. Worldview came from the church. A sense of community came directly from the church. And the push and pull between the church and some of his wilder tendencies would be a source of friction for the rest of his life. My other question is, if you were, if you were, had these religious roots, wasn't it kind of a, a, a tearing circumstance for you to be appearing um, in eye makeup and so forth, and then also be a devout Baptist? Uh, well, I wasn't. They, the Baptists in those days probably didn't want women wearing makeup. Did uh, they? Well, well, in those days, uh, some of them didn't know what they was wearing themselves. Mm-hmm. Uh, 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 well, what happened is, I wasn't really, uh, really a religious person. I, I was a young boy. I, I wanted to be famous so bad. Little Richard's real name is Richard Penniman. He started going by Little Richard for a couple reasons. One, he was a little kid when he started performing. I think he started getting his first gigs at like 12. And two, there was a blues singer named Little Milton. Pretty hot at the time. So they tried to ride those coattails. The thinking was that it would look good on a promotional poster. Things changed for Little Richard with Tutti Frutti. He had been recording since 1952. Four years later, Tutti Frutti became a hit in 1956. And after that, there was a period of time where Little Richard could do no wrong. He put out one hit song right after another for about two years. And when you look at Tutti Frutti... The lyrics now seem like gibberish or even even childish, um, but originally they were overtly sexual. Tell me about your first record. It was what Tutti Frutti? Tutti Frutti. What was that about? It was a filthy record. Uh, uh, it was you cleaned up the lyrics to record. Yeah, we songs. had it was Wap Babaloo Ma Balap Bam Boom, but it wasn't Tutti Frutti Old Rudy. It was Tutti Frutti something else. Tutti Frutti Good Booty. That was the original line. Tutti Frutti Good Booty. And the whole song was filthy. If you if you want to hear more, you're going to have to Google it. This is a this is a family show. On top of that, though, he played and and sang with an exaggerated black vernacular. So just by its very nature, a lot of white folks didn't get it. But the sheer energy of his recordings and of his performance. Spoke to teenage kids. Got a gal named Daisy. She almost got me 
Energy, attitude, that's what it was about. Keep in mind what mainstream pop music sounded like in the mid-50s. Tutti Frutti was released in October of 1955. Here are the songs that were popular at that time. That was Love is a Many Splendored Thing by the Four Aces. Listen to the angel's story of the shifting, whispering sands. Yes, it always whispers to me of the days of long ago when the settlers and the miners the crafty Navajo. That was the Shifting Whispering Sands by Rusty Draper. I'm going to give you one more. The New Year's Eve we did the town The day we tore the goalpost down Moments to Remember by the Four Lads. All of those songs, I went back, looked it up, all of those songs were were top ten hits in October of 55. And then all of a sudden you had this. You just can't underestimate how radical that shift was. It it was insane. And literally changed the world. You know, and and I mentioned this, I mentioned this a couple minutes ago, but in a weird way, music is sort of in a similar boat now as to where it was in 1955. Of course, there are decades of rock and rap influences thrown in, but... A lot of the music on the radio now is anything but raw or or rough. It's smooth, buffered. Uh, it's it's easy to listen to. You know, think of somebody like Sean Mendez. That's it kind of personifies this. Back to Little Richard in 1958 or after 1958, felt a calling. Retired from music for the church. There's that push and pull between God and and music again. And it it really starts in earnest here. He eventually became an ordained minister. He would later officiate the weddings of Tom Petty, Steve Van Zandt, Bruce Willis, and Cyndi Lauper. You might be tempted to assume that he'd be all right financially to make this move. Um, 
And when you think about it, there's no reason he shouldn't have been. Uh, the guy had nine top 40 pop hits. Those are pop hits in less than two years. Um, and many more songs charted on the on the R&B charts. But financially, um, stability and security, well, wasn't really the case. Now, have these songs made you a wealthy, wealthy man? Well, it should have. Mm-hmm. Oh, this is your uh, managers again. Uh, oh, my managers are very rich, yeah, sitting yeah. on heels. Some of them falling off of the heels now. Uh-huh. The storms are pushing some of them off. Uh, but uh, I made a lot of money, but I was cheated. I was used. I was exploited, you know. He started playing rock music again in the mid-60s. This was a particularly lucrative time for him. Sam Cooke opened up for him. Billy Preston played in his band. Later, the Beatles opened for him. How about this, Bill? Found this one. In 1963, he joined a tour with the Everly Brothers, Bo Diddley, and the Stones. (laughs) Then the next year in 64, he hired a guitarist for his band named Jimi Hendrix. And he actually recorded two songs with both Hendrix and Billy Preston in his band. Here's one of them. It became a uh, a number 12 R&B hit. It's called I Don't Know What You've Got, But It's Got Me. Little Richard, Billy Preston, Jimi Hendrix. You're not very, very much to look at. But you know just where it's at. You don't have one thing in time. In Little Richard's music, there's a lot of playfulness. There's a lot of sex. You can't talk about his music without talking about sex. It cannot be argued that no one in the 50s or even the 60s flaunted gender fluidity or sexuality in general like Little Richard did. No, not even Elvis. It's just an integral part of his story. His own sexuality was... Ambiguous at best. Here he is talking to David Letterman in the 80s. And he he, he unleashes a real groaner 
in this conversation. You'll you'll know it when you hear it. I'm not gay now, but you know, I was gay all my life. I believe I was one of the first gay people to come out. But God let me know that he made Adam be with Eve, not Steve. So uh, 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 so I just, uh, I gave my heart to Christ. But let me add, that's a, you keep saying one provocative thing after another. You used to be gay, but now you're not. I'm not, I, I'm a man for the first time in my life. Yeah. I know how you feel now. He later described himself as omnisexual, being attracted to both men and women. But then as late as 2017, he publicly denounced the gay lifestyle yet again. For the record, he was married once from 1959 to 1964. By the late 70s, the sins began to pile up again. Booze, drugs, hard living, touring. He'd had enough. He retired again, became born again, and released more gospel music. It's worth noting that while his output in the 70s was was pretty spotty, there's some great stuff. And, and I bring this up because people don't think about Little Richard in the 1970s. This was the era of, of Zeppelin and Floyd and Frampton. But here is a cut called Freedom Blues from the album The Real Thing. Hope that I should live to see When every mansion knows he's By this point, he was mixing in styles from like like Wilson Pickett and Isaac Hayes. Here's one from the same record that I, I just, I absolutely love. It's called Somebody Saw You. The last two albums of his recording career were both released in 1992. One was an album called Shake It All About, which he recorded for Disney. Shake It All About from the Hokey Pokey, right? You do the Hokey Pokey, you shake it all about. You see, he covered children's songs on this record. Itsy Bitsy Little Spider, On Top of Spaghetti, Old MacDonald Had a Farm. I can speak with authority here because my parents... Um, bought me this on tape when I was a kid. And some of the first music that I remember hearing and hearing on repeat, like over and over again, uh, were these songs. His last album was was rather unceremonious. Uh, again, also released in 1992. It's called Little Richard Meets Little Richard Meets Masayoshi Takanaka. Masayoshi Takanaka. I'm sure I just slaughtered that name. The gentleman mentioned in the album title is a Japanese guitarist. 
the two of them re-recorded Richard's old hits, and I haven't heard a note of it, but if you've ever listened to Little Richard meets Masayoshi Takanaka, <laughs> then please drop me a line. Could be great. Could be great. Who knows? I, 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 I don't. I don't. Little Richard announced a retirement from performing in uh, 2013. He was 80 years old. Four years later, he gave what would be his last interview. It was with a Christian TV station. Richard Penniman, also known as rock and roll legend Little Richard, says choosing between his fame and his faith was one of the best decisions he's ever made. I didn't feel right anymore. I would sing and do things, but... You know, I wasn't a part of the in crowd anymore. Add it all up and it's a remarkable life. Maybe not an easy life, but it is a remarkable life. Little Richard passed away in early May. He was 87 years old. Long live the king. All right, friends, we are building the most perfect playlist known to man. You can find it on Spotify by searching Stream Police every month. We add five more songs, and we're going to do that right now. First, it's Living in a Ghost Town by the Rolling Stones. I'm a ghost, living in a ghost town. I'm going It's a brand new cut, their first original recording since 2012. Uh, let's see, this is also new. It's called False Prophet by Bob Dylan. You don't know me, darling. You never would guess. I'm nothing like my ghostly appearance would suggest. I ain't no false prophet. I just said what I said I'm just here to bring vengeance on somebody More new music This is from baby. It's called Sad Shit Yeah Fuck yeah. that I'm back on my pimpin' him. Back fucking four or five women. If I really did you wrong, then tell me why the fuck I'm in my feelings. Singing in my motherfucking song. Staring at my motherfucking phone. Can't wait for you to pop up. Tried to get you pregnant, get you knocked up. You know I got the whole world against me. I thought that you was with me. Everybody out here wanna see me locked up. You know I love the way you do it to me, baby. Know you thinking about when you was with the baby. Probably end up with a suck nigga who ain't really real. A nigga who don't care about his kids. A bitch nigga probably don't respect his mother. You know I ever catch you with him, nigga getting beat up. You know when you was cold, I came through and helped you heat up. What you doing with that nigga, girl? You know you don't belong when I'm supposed to be with me. Out on the ocean with your feet up, rolling weed up, keep it real with them you ain't gotta lie i know staying with new music from the album the k is silent this is then it rained by hot country nights and this is sort of a a garth brooks uh parody it's it's pretty funny 
I was talking on the phone with my neighbor Ted. I asked him, how's it going? This is what he said. His wife was in Ohio with some old college friends. Would I want to watch the game? And then it rained. There's this time down in Fort Worth In some old honky-tonk I was out of town on business Wasn't doing nothing wrong I ordered up a hot dog And a glass of Chardonnay Somewhere I thought I heard George Strait And then it rained It rained Okay, so that's four new songs. Let's do one from 1980. This is Roger McGuinn, Gene Clark, and Chris Hillman, all formerly of the Birds. Basically, this is um, this is the Birds minus David Crosby. Uh, again, from 1980, the song is called "One More Chance." That's it. Thank you so much. Going to toss it back to Clint. And uh, he told me he's going to talk about Star Wars. And um, it ain't going to be pretty. Here we go. Clint, take it away, my friend. Hey, thank you very much, Andy. So let's get back to talking about movies and TV. I want to tell you now about a film that is streaming for you on Disney+. Plus. Um, and it is the final ninth you know, episode in the, the epic Star Wars saga. They call it the final one in the Skywalker saga, I guess. So we'll start something new here uh, before too long. But anyway, Star Wars Rise of Skywalker. It's now streaming for you on Disney+. Plus, and I figured I'd share my thoughts on it with you. Just let me come right out of the gate and say it. I thought this movie was a huge disappointment as a way to end the saga. Beth and I were very excited to sit down and watch it. I didn't read anything really about it. We we didn't go see it when it was in theaters, which was weird because we went and saw the other ones in theaters. But we just didn't see this one in theaters for whatever reason. I, probably because we have a toddler. But I don't. You know, I'm tired of blaming my. Uh, uh, our lack of a social life on him, even though it's probably true. But, you know, it's just not, it doesn't seem fair because he can't defend himself. It's like picking on Jerry Krause in The Last Dance. Anyway, Star Wars Rise of Skywalker. We sat down with it. After it was over, I was just like, that was, that was. So we're going to end it the way we began it with the prequels. We're going to feel totally disappointed all over again here. This movie just felt lifeless 
to me, man. And so paint by numbers from start to finish. Like if you were creating a Star Wars movie, you know, based on what you had seen in the other Star Wars movies, this is what you would come up with. Like you, my friend, you, a person who is not a trained didn't go to film school for four or six years studying under great screenwriters and learning the art of crafting, putting together a story, putting together a film. This is what you would probably come up with, what I would probably come up with, honestly. It was just so by the numbers all the way through. No chances taken whatsoever. And I feel like Disney really let us down when they decided to act like The Last Jedi never even happened. I was one of those who really banged the drum for The Last Jedi. I loved it. I thought it was it took chances, which was something Star Wars hadn't done in a long time. Um, it gave, gave us unexpected new characters, took us new places. Um, and it had this really kind of emotional heart and center, you know, in it, which is another thing that ha- wasn't really common for for Star Wars, because George Lucas wasn't a really like a big humanist writer. It just wasn't his strong suit. But if you watch, and you know, in The Last Jedi, one of the main characters of the film was Rose Tycho, right? Who was played by Kelly Marie Tran. But just try, I'm telling you, man, try to find Rose Tycho in Rise of Skywalker. It is impossible. You'll have better luck finding Count Dooku in Rise of Skywalker, all right? She was basically the main character of the last film. And they acted like in this one she was just some jabroni background character in Rise of Skywalker. They acted like she didn't matter at all. They treated her like shit. It was unbelievable. I was so disappointed in that fact. And I just thought it showed a complete lack of balls and a lack of of sense from Disney, they didn't even mention her romance with Finn. I mean, remember that? That had, was this huge climactic moment when they had their big kiss at the you know the end of the big battle in The Last Jedi. It was a great moment. And it made Finn more human. And it you know gave Rose something to really live for after her sister had died. And, and, and she, you know, uttered that great line at the end of the movie, and they kissed and they were big, they were heroes. And then this movie happens, and they're not. They barely have any scenes together. They say, like, two words to each other. It's very curt, and I don't know what the hell happened. It's just, it's so confusing. I think it's going to be so jarring and confusing for people when they go back and watch the entire new trilogy from start to finish in years to come. It just all felt so disjointed. Like, there was almost nothing that flowed evenly from one to the next. And the reason that the original trilogy... Episodes 4, 5, and 6 are so beloved is because they are smooth. They flow. The tone is the same. The look is the same. Uh, the character cast is basically the same. They throw in some new people here and there. But it's it's just a very even trilogy is what makes it one of the great trilogies in movie history. Um, and, and this one, it just felt so uneven. And part of that is because you had you know, two different filmmakers with very different styles making these three movies. And uh, another part of it is just because Disney was making it up as they went along. Um, And it really showed, I think. And they were bending to the wills of fans who didn't have the best interests of the saga in mind. They had their own best interests in mind. They had the best interests of the status quo in mind. You know what I'm saying? So I... I really liked, if you've been listening to this show for a long time, you know that I really liked The Force Awakens. 
I reviewed it in, you know, an early episode of this show. And I had it in my top 10 movies for the year of 2015, actually. Can you imagine that? I had The Force Awakens in my top 10 movies in 2015. So I loved it. I thought it was fantastic. Um, and I thought it was a great return to form for Star Wars, just because it was it was really enjoyable and fun. And I also loved The Last Jedi, because I thought it brought in some interesting new characters. I thought it made the entire cast more diverse, which is always a good thing, especially when you're talking about a story that's supposed to be you know, universal, and it's supposed to be this big story. We're not talking about a small cast of characters. We're talking about a big world-building kind of deal. So make the cast more diverse. Make it look less like it's just like white people and one black guy. You know what I mean? Like that's the whole universe. And I thought that The Last Jedi told a very human story as well. But then, of course, Mark Hamill had to come out and say that he thought the film was a disservice to Luke Skywalker. And this entire army of asshole fans came out and review-bombed The Last Jedi until it looked like shit on Rotten Tomatoes. They forced Kelly Marie Tran to leave social media. They made John Boyega just want to be done with the entire thing. And so what did Disney and Kathleen Kennedy and J.J. Abrams do in response to those people? They bent over for them and gave them a movie so devoid of heart and anything risky at all in terms of its plot and execution that it ends up being a letdown for all of us. So the people who hated The Last Jedi didn't like this movie, and the people who liked The Last Jedi also didn't like this movie. So I guess they did find a way to somehow unite those people. But it was I was just very disappointed. I think the main word for this film, Rise of Skywalker, is lifeless. It just felt lifeless. And part of that is because... Carrie Fisher was supposed to play a big part in it, and she really did die. And so they had to do, you know, the animation. They had to edit pieces of her old performances together, and that just feels weird for everyone, and it looks weird. And so that's part of this problem. But the rest of it is just because it just all feels like we've been there before, and it's all kind of been done, right? I'm going to say at least when George Lucas made The Phantom Menace, Okay, now you're not going to believe this, but I'm going to defend the Star Wars prequels here for just a second. So bear with me. So at least when George Lucas made The Phantom Menace and the just atrocious Attack of the Clones, but especially The Phantom Menace, when he made The Phantom Menace and he created Jar Jar Binks, who everyone ended up hating and ripping on, and he's kind of the, the whole, like, the most hated figure in all of Star Wars, except, I don't know, maybe Rose Tycho is now according to who, you know, depending on who you're asking. But when Lucas created Jar Jar Binks, he was doing so with the idea of giving kids kind of a funny new weirdo character to laugh along with. I mean, he thought of the Star Wars saga as a thing that was mostly for kids. You know what I mean? I mean, they had the characters on cereal boxes. They had little action figure toys. They had a Christmas special that's so notoriously cheesy that, you know, anyone in Star Wars has disavowed all knowledge of it at this point. But he thought of it as a thing kind of for kids. But what happened was when, you know, The Phantom Menace came out, all these Star Wars fans had gotten, you know, had gotten older and they thought of it as theirs. It's mine. This is my thing, damn it. It's not for the kids. I was a kid when it came out. Now I'm old and now I'm pissed off because my life sucks. And I want some dark, gritty Star Wars. And that's not what happened at all in The Phantom Menace. And so people really, you know, didn't like it. I'm not saying it's a great movie, but... Jar Jar Binks was supposed to be funny. He wasn't supposed to be like the new Darth Vader or something. He was supposed to be silly. He was supposed to be kind of like the new C-3PO, really. Um, 
And, it, you know, his accent is what killed it, I think, in the end. But anyway, it was an obnoxious attempt, but he was trying to do something different and fun, and I think something that had a little bit of heart in it. But in the case of Rise of Skywalker, they simply pulled out things that had been done a million times, including the big reveal at the end of who one of the main characters is related to, and it didn't even really make sense in the end. It brought back a character that was from the old movies that was dead, and it was just didn't make sense to me. I didn't really, I don't know, I didn't connect with it. And I ended up having to look up kind of like what it all meant as far as how this character was involved. And what I got were a bunch of explanations. It was like, well, if you read the Star Wars expanded series novels, you would have seen... I mean, fucking, are you serious with, like, that's where we got to go with this? So that's just, that's esoteric stuff that no one knows about. So most people are just going to come into the movie and be like, oh, well, he's back alive. So that's cool. I guess the the writers were lazy. So that's that's all we're going to see. That's all we're going to think in the end. But anyway, I was just so excited for this new trilogy after The Force Awakens came out. But you know what? Now that I've seen The Rise of Skywalker... I think it actually reflects poorly on The Force Awakens, and I think it reveals that movie for the kind of cheap nostalgia fest that it was. And The Last Jedi was the only one that took any real risks and had some really good action scenes in it as well, but really took some real risks. I mean, don't tell me that that lightsaber battle in The Last Jedi with Rey and with Kylo Ren when they're in that room with all the red soldiers uh, in that white room, that that's the best thing that Disney's Star Wars trilogy gave us, I think, uh, in the, this whole you know nine hours or whatever it is that it takes to watch these movies. I think that's as good as it got, um, and that was in the Last Jedi again. So you can't—I don't think you can disagree with that. But I just think Disney missed a huge opportunity here, and they still own Star Wars, obviously. So I hope they're going to take advantage of it now. But they were not beholden to George Lucas or to anyone when they started this new trilogy, and yet they ended up bowing down and giving us the safest possible example of a new story arc that was pretty much a lot of the same things over again, bringing back old characters at every turn, giving us basically no new ideas whatsoever, and it was, in the end, a huge, I think, disappointment, and I don't think it added anything to the legacy of Star Wars at all. I really don't. I don't think it added anything that we needed uh, into the Star Wars universe. So I was I was disappointed in the end, you could say, if you couldn't tell from my review. Thankfully, we can still go back and enjoy Rogue One for the uh, tense heist flick that it was. I think that's going to end up going down as Disney's best Star Wars movie for the foreseeable future. We'll see if they're able to top it in the future. But I don't have high hopes after watching that trilogy. I still haven't watched The Mandalorian. I'm going to get around to that and I'll review it here on the show when I do. But yeah, Rise of Skywalker streaming now on Disney+. Plus. I hated it, man. I just was I was very disappointed with that movie when it all settled because I've liked the Star Wars trilogy a lot over the years. Um, I've even loved it at times, but this was just not anything that anyone needed. It just didn't bring anything to the table that was necessary. So that's my review. Do you have any thoughts? Send me a, an email, theclintdavis at gmail.com. Too harsh? I don't know, maybe. I mean, it's Star Wars at the end. Who really cares? It's supposed to be fun, but this one, it wasn't even that fun. If it would have been fun, I would have been fine with it. That's why I like The Force Awakens. Did it do anything new? Hell no. It was all the same shit, but it was really fun. The effects looked great. It was cool to see Harrison Ford again, you know what I mean? So it was it was cool at that point. Great to see Chewbacca. Great to see the, the Millennium, Millennium Falcon again, but 
at this point now we're we're so many years into it that it's just like yeah, I mean, come on, give us something new. And Ryan Johnson tried to give us something new, but all they did was wipe their ass with him, and I hate that. I thought we had a shot. There's just too many of them. But there are more of us, Poe. There are more of us. They did Rose Tycho dirty, man. Did her wrong. Who'd she ever hurt? She was a freaking hero. She was a hero of the resistance. She deserves a statue. Her and her sister both. Give them statues, damn it. All right, so now is when I tell you about the best thing I watched this month. And I'll tell you, it was not The Rise of Skywalker, if you can believe that. Instead, the best thing I watched this month is now streaming for you on Amazon Prime, on Canopy, if you have a library card, and on Pluto TV, where it is free with ads. You don't have to have a subscription to Pluto TV to watch this movie. It's 1965's The Spy Who Came In from the cold an adaptation of uh, my favorite john le carré spy novel and one of the great spy novels ever written but anyway even if you've never seen the read the book this movie's fantastic i watched some great stuff this month let me tell you i watched uh the browning version the 1994 version with albert finney loved it after hours the martin scorsese movie loved it the 400 blows classic french cinema loved it I watched 101 Dalmatians, the original, fell back in love with that movie, thought it was a Disney masterpiece. But 1965's The Spy Who Came In From The Cold beat them all with a stick, as my dad used to say. I was just gripped from the first frame to the last of this movie. Richard Burton gives a flawless performance as a burned-out British spy who poses as a defector in order to get close uh, to the East Germans. That's the story in a nutshell, but it's a lot of twists and turns from there. But Burton is just fantastic. He was apparently a total asshole on the set and just impossible to work with, but he's dialed in and I can't imagine anyone else playing this part. It's perfect. It's a, it's a one of the great you know performances you're going to see. The whole thing was shot in stark black and white. The music is perfectly sparse, little piano notes. Unlike many 1960s movie scores, which are just totally in your face and over the top, it was just really all well done from start to finish. It's just about as perfect a spy movie as you're ever going to see. And there are no shootouts and no car chases to be had, if you can imagine that. It's just all classic intrigue. So... The Spy Who Came In From The Cold from 1965. Watch it now on Amazon Prime. Check it out on Canopy, which is where I watched it, or on Pluto TV, which is, uh, has it for free with some ads if you want to check it out. And Canopy, by the way, is with a K. K-A-N-O-P-Y. And you can find that on any uh, TV streaming service uh, or, or TV streaming device, I should say, that you use.
All right, and some movies streaming now for you on Netflix and Amazon. I always like to tell you something funny and something serious, whatever you're in the mood for. I think we all need something funny right now, right? Well, on Netflix, um, I'm going to give you some recommendations that I know Andy Sedlak will love. First off, something funny, Back to the Future 1 and 2 are streaming for you on Netflix right now. I loved these movies when I was a kid, still love them now. When I was a kid, I actually liked the second one better because I thought it was just so cool. I had never seen anything done like when they're going back to the first movie and you see like scenes from the first movie and Marty's in the in the new, you know, version, you can see the old Marty in the background. It was just crazy. It was like mind-blowing to me. I had never seen anything done so you know, just such slick production uh, in that movie. And I mean, now it looks pretty rudimentary, but it was, I thought it was incredible. I thought it was so creative. So uh, I love those movies and they're some of my childhood favorites. And uh, I know Andy still loves them as well. So back to the future one and two, if you never, for whatever reason, never got around to them, check them out, man. These are great movies. There's a reason people still love them. It's, it's just timeless 1980s filmmaking also something serious for you on netflix i know andy likes this one as well at least i think he i think he's told me he really likes this movie 2009's public enemies this was the movie about the fbi's hunt of john dillinger uh and it's directed by the great michael mann one of my very favorite directors he gives you an amazing cast johnny depp christian bale marion cotillard stephen dorff among others a lot of great actors uh, and a uh, cool movie, underrated, overlooked from 2009. Public Enemies, now streaming on Netflix. And on Amazon for you, uh, something funny. I'm just going to give you Bond movies because every pre-Daniel Craig Bond movie is on Amazon Prime now in glorious high definition. I'm a great lover of the James Bond movies. I own them all, love them all. I mean, I don't know if I love them all, but for whatever – for different reasons i love them all for different reasons some of them are shitty and they're good because they're shitty if you want a funny one watch you only live twice uh this was the one where i mean these are some things that happen in you only live twice bond becomes asian they give him plastic surgery and he to make him look like a japanese guy and it sounds bad and it is bad it's really dumb it's like the it doesn't he doesn't look asian at all but he's just like they made his skin a little bit kind of the little darker, little yellowish, even kind of. It's not like really bad racist, but it's it's pretty bad. And the, like he's got like the bowl cut, and it's it's stupid. It's totally stupid. But anyway, Bond becomes Asian using plastic surgery. He takes a fake wife to add to his undercover ruse. He uses a cigarette that actually shoots people when he smokes it, and you act, actually get to see one of the villains get eaten by sharks. Um, and you know, I mean, this is the one that has Blofeld petting his cat and all that. One of the movies that does that. So like all the Austin Powers stuff comes from you only live twice. A lot of it does anyway. So check this movie out. Uh, if you haven't seen it, it's just hilarious. It's nuts. It's as crazy as Bond, uh, gets, he flies on a little helicopter and blows up all these like, you know, high tech fighter plane helicopters and or I think they're I think they're like fighter jets but anyway he's flying this like little dinky helicopter that MI6 gave him and of course he blows them all out of the air so it's just as as over the top as they come uh but some serious picks two for you uh from the James Bond collection on Amazon Prime right now I'm going to give you On Her Majesty's Secret Service the most overlooked Bond movie and arguably the best 
of all the pre-Daniel Craig Bond movies. It's my favorite of all the old Bond movies. It's just, like I said, deadly serious. Bond is more human in this movie than he had ever been uh, and would ever be for a long time. It doesn't have a lot of the stupid shit in it that, that you know bogs down some of those old ones and makes them look silly. And it's just a really good movie. George Lazenby does a nice job uh, in what would be a thankless role for him taking over for Sean Connery. Also, From Russia With Love. Uh, it, it might really be the best Bond movie. It was the second one, and it set the bar really high for what was to come down the rest of the home stretch. But From Russia With Love is is the best of the Sean Connery Bond movies. I think. I like it even better than Goldfinger, uh, if you ask me. It's just very tense and intense. Uh, very smart. It's a, it's a good film. So check those out on Amazon Prime. Uh, the Bond. You can't really go wrong. Just turn on any of the Bond movies, and you'll, you'll pretty much find something to like. Uh, they're fun. Um, hell of a lot of fun to watch. All right, so that's going to do it for another edition of the Stream Police Podcast. I'm glad you hung out with me, my friend. I'm glad you took some time here out of your busy schedule, uh, sitting at home, finding, trying to find something to clean, trying to find something to watch on TV, and I'm glad you gave us some time here on the Stream Police. I look forward to talking to you again next month. Please reach out to me on email at theclintdavis at gmail.com, and you can hit Andy at sedlackjournal at gmail.com and you can find me on instagram at mr clint davis and andy is there at andy sedlak we'll talk to you next time my friend until then stream on yeah planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.